a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move. Down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 143 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster and owner of Game Time Media in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business by talking to sportscasters from all over the country and beyond. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to the podcast on the app of your choice and share the podcast with your friends on your favorite social media outlet. We're recording here today from the almost world famous Say the Damn Score studio here in the basement of my Burnsville, Minnesota apartment. And last episode, I said I was done doing games for the year. And just like Michael Corleone, just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. That's my way too overdramatic way of saying I picked up a couple of freelance gigs over the last couple weeks. And both were unique in that they were marathon sessions with uh, numerous games in one day. I did state softball uh, here in Minnesota, which was six games in one day, starting at 9 in the morning, getting done around, I think, 9.30, 10 at night. And then I did another day uh, just about a week later where I did eight basketball games in a day as part of a high school summer showcase and both were enjoyable in their own way. I particularly enjoy state softball where, you know what, they're playing at the, it's some of the best players in the state playing at the top of their games. Uh, the high school showcase was a little bit ragtag where, uh, all the rosters were basically completely different than the ones I was giving going into the game. And it was a lot of scrambling. You didn't know who was going to be there. But ultimately, the games were fun. There was a lot of great talent. But you know what? We're professionals here. And the paychecks that I get from doing these two broadcast marathon days uh, are going to be close to enough to cover airfare and my rental car for me and my wife to go on a trip to New England for our anniversary uh, in August. So by any metric... Well worth it, but I did do a couple games that I didn't expect. There will probably be more here or there as we go through the summer, but now I am just about, as far as I know, unless something comes up, done until uh, the start of the fall. But anyway, this week's guest is Larry Morgan. He's a legendary broadcaster in Iowa, longtime basketball broadcaster for the Hawkeyes, currently uh, the TV broadcaster for Drake University Men's Basketball, uh, Division One out of the Missouri Valley Conference. He's been a stalwart on the airwaves in Des Moines for over 40 years and also happens to be a long-term fan of this podcast who provides great feedback on a relatively regular basis. So bonus points 
for Larry. And I'm glad we were finally able to make it work for him to come on the show. So, Larry, thanks so much. How's everything going? I'm good. And as I say, yes, I'm a big fan of the podcast. I'd say that I either learn something or reaffirm something that I believe in every time I hear one of your podcasts. And I'm really flattered you asked me. So thanks, Logan. Well, and I appreciate you have emailed me a lot of good ideas about the podcast for a long time without ever like asking to come on because that's what people usually email me to come on is, Hey, yeah, but you, but you read between the lines. Thank you. <laughs> you just said something interesting because you've been, we'll start there. You've been in the business so long. I would say you're probably is semi retired the right word. You're still doing Drake basketball, but you don't work radio full time anymore, but you still are actively trying to learn things or reaffirm things. What goes into that philosophy? How often are you trying to still improve and work on your craft? You know, that's interesting because my wife thinks that that I'm crazy to say this. I'm still trying to get better. You know, I, I love what I do. And I just think the more people you listen to and the more advice you have and the more ideas you get, uh, yeah, I, I still want to get better. You know, like I know other guests have told you I've never done a perfect broadcast and never will. But, man, I sure appreciate the challenge of trying to get that accomplished. So, yeah, I just uh, it's lifelong learning. And the one thing I've done lifelong learning in, I guess. What about broadcasting do you love? You said you've something you've done for 40 years. You still love doing it. You're still working to improve. What about broadcasting specifically makes you happy and brings you joy? You know, first of all, it's the relationship with coaches and players, number one. Uh, number two, I just, I love sports. And number three, just trying to get better and trying to learn more. Um, I don't know. I just, I just, I just love doing it. You know, I just, there's something about, and I would tell you, I enjoyed the preparation. And now that I'm retired from my day job, you know, I enjoy the preparation as much as doing the games itself. But just, you know, being around interesting coaches who are always interesting people, and uh, that would be number one. You know, I think the fact that once in a while somebody will tell you they appreciate your work, it's never been a motivator for me, but it's always a nice thing to hear. You're originally from Kansas City. Uh, how did you end up getting your first break in Des Moines? And it looks like uh, 1978 is when you first started in that market. Yeah, good good work. Yeah, so I graduated the University of Kansas in 1970 and got a job in a small market in Kansas, our Kansas City Winfield. You may or may not have heard of that. And then I moved on to Bloomington, Illinois. I was there for four years. And then um, it just the career seemed to be stalling there. So I moved to Ventura, California for not a great job, but it, you know, it was, it was California and it was outside Los Angeles. I was sure that was going to lead to me becoming the voice of the Dodgers of the angels. But of course that didn't happen. And so, um, in 1978, there was an opening to do the Drake games. And so I applied and got that job and that led to the Iowa job. You said you went to uh, the University of Kansas. I'm not exactly sure how these timelines would line up. Were you a student of Tom Hedrick? Or did yes, you... I was a student of the legendary Tom Hedrick, who just turned, kind of think, 85 or 86. I talked to him uh, on his birthday, which is Cinco de Mayo. So, yeah, so I studied for Tom. But the interesting thing Tom would tell you 
he claims I'm the only student that ever balled him out. Now, I don't know that I don't have the same recollection, but so I went to KU because Tom was there. And then he left in the middle of my college career, which brought in Gary Bender. So I was exposed to not one, but two great broadcasters and teachers. What did you learn from them? What was it like uh, being under their tutelage? And that had to be, again, I don't have the exact timeline. I didn't look this up, but it had to be pretty early in their educational career. Yeah, well, I think Tom had been there for, he'd been there for a while by by the time uh, he left in 68. I think he might have been there a decade. So, I mean, I grew up listening to Tom doing the Jayhawk games. So to get a chance to study under him was great. And so basically... Um, we would get assignments. We would go out to a high school game and tape the play-by-play and come back, and he would critique it. He claims he never gave A's, although I would tell you he gave Kevin Harlan A's, which I totally understand. And uh, so so basically it was that. It was bringing your tape in. Uh, there was a class, and um, he so there would be maybe 15 of us, and he would critique our tapes and, and actually give us a written critique as he listened to them. And that was very helpful. And then uh, Gary Bender, had, you know, he'd learned from Tom how to teach, so he had the same philosophy. And uh, I also got to do a, a, what they called directed studies, which was kind of a, a one-on-one with Gary Bender. But there's actually another kid in the class named Jojo White who went on to the great thing with the Boston Celtics. So it was the two of us. But uh, both of them had the same basic philosophy as um, – let's listen to your tape, let us critique your tape, tell you what you're doing right and wrong, and, and that's basically how I learned. That's funny, because my two favorite sportscasting books that are on my shelf behind me, The Art of Sportscasting by Tom Hedrick and The Call of the Game by Gary Bender, I didn't realize they both taught that close uh, in succession at oh, the yeah. University of Absolutely. Kansas. And, and I would tell you, you know, I, I mentioned in, in Tom's book several times, it's like, Bob Costas and Vin Scully and Joe Castiglione. And what's Larry Morgan doing in this group? (laughs) And I'm always amused by that, but I love it. What were those interviews like for the book? Well, you know, basically he asked what my preparation was like and uh, how I approached the game and how I approached my philosophy about different decisions or your job taking, all those kind of things. But of course, the biggest tip I gave in the book was using the restroom before the broadcast starts. (laughs) That's definitely one that somebody learns at some point in their first year. Exactly. Yeah. But they would also tell you things that you wouldn't have thought about. Like when you get there, first of all, get there early, check out the scoreboard, see where they are, kind of understand where you're going to be working from things like that. Things that maybe wouldn't when you're a young broadcaster you think about but those are important things like learning to read the scoreboard learning to see where it's located (laughs) so let's go back a little bit to you were in california you were hoping to eventually get uh, in that la market the baseball announcer there just refused to retire so you weren't (laughs) able to uh you weren't able to get in with the dodgers what was the the story behind making the eventual move to Des Moines. You kind of went over the very quick cliff notes on it, but how did that opportunity arise? How difficult of a decision was it to make at that point in your life? Well, I think, you know, I might have been slightly kidding. I think realistically, I don't know if I ever thought I was going to go to the L.A. market, but I thought being on the doorstep, who knows, maybe there's a possibility. But I'm a Midwesterner, as 
you know, I grew up in Kansas City. So uh, my parents lived in Kansas City, and there was a note in the Kansas City Star that Steve Shannon, who had been the voice of the Drake Bulldogs, had been hired by the Kansas City Royals to do their television. So I thought they passed that along to me, and I said, oh, there must be an opportunity in Des Moines to do the Drake games. So I applied to KSO Radio in Des Moines, and, of course, they weren't looking for just play-by-play. They were looking for a newscaster, and I hadn't done news for a number of years, but I put together a tape, and they hired me. And going back then for our younger listeners, you know that meant actually putting together a tape, not just updating the stuff on your website <laughs> and you know, sending it I FedEx. How much of a, how more involved of a process was that for you? Well, you know, first of all, I think we all go through the same thing about looking for the best of us, right? But, you know, you're just, you're listening to, yeah, tape after tape or cassette after cassette. And finally, you uh, figure this is enough and you somehow patch it together. And I got to tell you, if I had to apply for a job today, today's technology baffles me. I could not possibly do that without a lot of help from somebody. So taking that job and uh, doing... My understanding was both the morning show and Drake Sports. What was the appealing part about uh, doing Drake Sports and combining that with the morning show? Oh, there was nothing appealing about doing the morning show, Logan. It was just <laughs> the opportunity to do Division One college sports. And in those days, the Drake football team was also Division One, and they would play Iowa State and they'd play Colorado and some teams like that besides the Missouri Valley Conference teams. So the appeal was just getting to do play-by-play Division One basketball. The morning show, and the way that happened actually was, so I, I go to KSO to do the news and do the uh, play-by-play, and then we had a next door or in the same building, but, I mean, an affiliate was a, a classic rock and roll station, KGGO. So I used to go over there and do a little sports over there also, and eventually – it became, uh, there was an opening on the morning show, and they thought that I might be a good match with the people who were working over there. So I started working the morning show and had that. We had great success doing the morning show, and, and it was never my uh, true love or passion, but it paid the bills. The play-by-play didn't pay the bills, and so I was able to do that on in doing the Iowa Hawkeye games, which meant that for a, a morning uh, show I would get up at three thirty, go to the morning show from like five thirty to nine o'clock. We got off, and then if I had a game in Iowa City, get in the car, drive to Iowa City in time for the shoot around, attend both shoot arounds, um, have a little lunch, go to the game, do the game, get in the car, get back at midnight, and wake up at three thirty the next morning and do it again. So it was never my desire to do the morning show, and people in Des Moines would be shocked to know that though I worked on the classic rock station. I am not a classic rock fan. <laughs> so what are you a fan of? How how difficult was it to pretend like you like something for that long? I don't know. <laughs> I did it. I, I remember one time we were interviewing Johnny Orr, the legendary Iowa State basketball coach uh, on KGGO. And I think he was in the studio. And while he was there, came word that a concert that night was canceled. And I had to act brokenhearted and... Johnny said, boy, Larry, you really seem to be brokenhearted about this concert being canceled. I said, you know, Dad, I don't care, but my audience expects it of me. (laughs) Do you remember who that artist was? 
who got their you concert know, I canceled? I don't. You know, we <laughs> played Judas Priest and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, Rolling Stones and things like that. I, I can't remember at all who it was. But it was somebody significant. Okay. Somebody significant to our audience. So one of the things that you went through pretty early in your career and was maybe the first, like, real adverse moment of mine was a lesser but similar situation where you – by my understanding, lost the opportunity to do Drake on the radio because of a rights change and turnover. It's one of those things that they happen all the time, but it's not necessarily the broadcaster's fault. What was it like at that young point in your career to go through that, and how did you react? Oh, it's, well, it's very disappointing. Um, and the reason that we lost the contract was Drake wanted someone – wanted a station to do women's basketball as well. Now, at the time, women's basketball was not very popular, and so my general manager said, we're not doing women's basketball, so we let the contract lapse. I had a chance to go to the station that wound up doing the games, KRNT, but that included sales, and I had done sales before, and I knew I just didn't want to do radio sales. So I just uh, took a chance. Well, I I guess it wasn't taking a chance because I wasn't going to sell and stayed at at KSO, and for the next couple of years, I was able to do high school games on uh, what what is now Mediacom, so I still got to do a little play-by-play, and then the Hawkeye job kind of magically opened up, and I magically got the job, and I, that probably is a story in itself, which I could tell you if you like, Um, the fact that I got the job was kind of a miracle to me, and the fact I got to keep it for 20 years was even better. That was definitely going to be next on my list. Was It, it seemed like a uh, probably a devastating thing at the time, but it opened you up to other opportunities in the market that in a lot of ways ended up being better, and I've seen that as a little bit of a pattern with a lot of the people that I talked to. So how did the opportunity to go from doing you know, Drake, Missouri Valley, small college team at that time, small D1 college team, I should say, to yeah. all of a sudden being the TV voice for the most popular team in the state, the Iowa Hawkeyes. Well, first of all, as you say, it was devastating. Uh, obviously, I'd moved to Des Moines to do Drake. I wanted to do Drake forever on radio and you know, be one of those legendary guys that stuck around. It didn't happen. So, um, so I'm doing... Uh, games for Mediacom, high school games. And we did like one Drake, Iowa game, which is the tape I used for my audition. Anyway, the job opened up because the guy who had done the play-by-play, Bob Hogan, moved to Hawaii. Can't blame him for that. And so I applied. Now, I had no connections to the University of Iowa whatsoever. So I did not expect to get the job at all. But obviously it's it's the best play-by-play job in the state, the most visible, and you have to apply for it. The rights were owned by a man named Bill Rasmussen, and I don't know if you're familiar with the name, but he was the man who founded ESPN, and it was Rasmussen Communications at the time. So um, one morning in May, I had already sent in all my tapes and stuff, there was a column in the Des Moines Register listing the five finalists for the Hawkeye job, and I was devastated to not be one of those. And I thought to myself, you know, I never thought I'd get the job. But I thought just on my ability, I should have finished someplace in the top five. Well, about three hours later, the phone rings, and it's Bill Rasmussen. And he says, don't believe what you read in the paper. You're the voice of the Hawkeyes. (laughs) Did he ever tell you 
how that happened or what set you apart over those other five finalists, despite maybe you the... You know, he never, he never did. I, it was just, you know, I guess he just liked the tape. Um, I did ask the basketball coach at Drake at the time to call the basketball coach at Iowa and put in a good word for me, but whether that ever happened or not, I don't know. Uh, I think he just liked the tape, or, or maybe it's the, the best of it, not a very good group of announcers. I don't know exactly why, but uh, he liked it, and, and that led to 20 years of, of great ability to cover the Hawkeyes. So that was Bill Rasmussen, I'm assuming, before he started ESPN, or had he already been kind of bounced no, out of after. ESPN at that point? Yeah, it was after. You know, he got bought out by Getty Oil and all, so he started his own production company out of Champaign, Illinois. I'm not sure why it was in Champaign, but it was, and uh, had the Hawkeye rights. He bought them from somebody called Black Hawk Communications, which was the Iowa rights holder at the time. And... uh yeah, so this was after after ESPN had, had been well-established. What was the best and worst part of moving from radio to TV? Well, the best part was not having to deal with the equipment and not worrying how we were going to get on the air or what if we don't get on the air, what if something's broken. That was the best part by far, not dealing with the equipment. And I tell people who, you know, do our technology, I tell people that to this day. That's the best part. But but seriously, it was a great platform, worked with great people. And the worst part, you know, I guess only the two-hour drive in bad weather was the only really bad part. How was the transition of switching the the style of your call to be less descriptive? Had you Did you have to put a lot of energy into that, or did it happen pretty naturally? I think it happened pretty naturally. Remember, so in that transition between Drake and maybe it was only a year, but I was doing high school basketball on uh, Mediacom, so I, I had a little bit of transition there and a little bit of opportunity to work on that, and then... Uh, you know, just watching other people on television, how they did it, and I, I learned a lot from them. So uh, the transition for me wasn't really difficult now that I think about it. And then there was a time that I was doing great women's basketball on radio and Hawkeye basketball on television. And I don't know, somehow it, the transition didn't seem to be too difficult, plus the fact for the Hawkeyes, I had a great analyst in uh, the late Mac McCausland. He was terrific and he liked to talk a lot. So that kind of reminded me, oh, wait, yeah, maybe the analyst should be 60% of the telecast and the play-by-play should be about 40% of the telecast as far as, you know, talking. And so I think that really helped me also. Looking at your LinkedIn profile, it looked like there was about a five-month stretch that you actually tried to do sales for one time, and it, it did not last very long. You said in our previous comment that you didn't want to uh, do that, that wasn't going to be uh, your cup of tea. Uh, what did you learn in that five months? I'd kind of forgotten that part. I worked for a Mediacom sales also, having nothing to do with doing the play-by-play for them. It was just totally separate things. And um, I just I, I just knew that selling wasn't really something I wanted to do uh, because, you know, I, I had to put – uh, bread on the table for the family. I worked at it and I was decent at it, but I never really enjoyed it. And then what happened was the Iowa Cubs, which is the Chicago Cubs AAA affiliate, has had a radio station at the time. And it actually, the studio was at the ballpark. So I was offered an opportunity to do that morning show. Uh, and I said, 
you know, I know this is not going to last because we're the third all-sports station in the Des Moines market. It's not going to last, but it's going to be a blast while I do it. So I did it for two years. As I was uh, assumed, as it was correct, the station eventually went away. They sold it. But so that's how I, so that's how I got out of sales and then never really went back into it. Although I would tell you that my day job would, would somewhat involve sales. So I did, but you know, broadcast sales are, are difficult compared to other things. So I was doing, you know, I had a day job in employee benefits and that was somewhat of a selling job, but, um, uh, that just getting out of radio or broadcast sales, and which has only gotten more difficult over the years. At what point in your career did you leave the the full time radio job, the morning show, all that stuff, to do a different job? And why did that prove to be a better fit? Um, well, because you know the radio station went away, so now oh, I that, had to, that's a good reason. I, I, yeah, <laughs> that's always the best. So I had a couple of other jobs. Um, doing some PR work and so forth. And then a friend of mine owned this company that put in cafeteria flex plans, which for those who don't know is a way to save money on taxes for medical expenses. And uh, I thought to myself, you know, this is this is a steady thing. Uh, I know him and I know he's going to treat me well. And that's what I wound up doing for the rest of my day job career, which lasted about, I think, 12 years till I retired. And of course, with every job I took was the proviso that I would be free to travel and do the Hawkeye game. So that always worked out. And, and I think the employer thought, you know, it's not bad to have our representative doing the Hawkeye games because they were so popular at the time. So uh, it all kind of worked out. But you know what I never had, what, which what I dreamed of was, and I'm sure your audience can relate to this, I always dreamed of that full-time sportscasting job. That never happened. Did you ever come close? I was offered some uh, TV anchor jobs in Des Moines. One of them would have included uh, Cyclone Television, but I just didn't think that uh, I didn't think I'd be very good at, at it. And I'm not sure how much I thought I'd enjoy it. So, and it never really came to an offer stage. I think we discussed it, but I never really got an offer. You've covered uh, some pretty legendary athletes over your time. Uh, Larry Bird at Indiana State passed through Drake when you were there. Uh, did you remember covering him? What did yeah, you that, see? What was, was coming later at the college stage? Oh, definitely. That was see my first year at Drake was his last year. So you know he comes in the big star and uh, uh, devastated Drake in the two games, the one there and the one uh, here in Des Moines. So yeah, he was a terrific athlete, and and there was no question about him. But prior to that. Logan, I had been, when I was in Bloomington, Illinois, I was the voice of the Illinois Wesleyan Fighting Titans, and they had a future NBA Hall of Famer named Jack Sigma. So I got to cover his games for his sophomore and junior years before I moved on to California. So, yeah, I've seen a lot of great athletes, and it's, that's been a true joy for me. Um, and then, of course, going through the Big Ten for 20 years and some great college basketball players I got to enjoy. Well, the other athlete that I wanted to ask you about is one that you almost certainly did not see coming, doing uh, the Iowa Barnstormers and covering Kurt Warner when he was doing <laughs> Arena League football. I'm sure you, right. nobody in that league, you don't ever expect them to actually uh, become make the NFL, much less become a star. What do you remember about covering Kurt Warner? That he was not only a terrific football player, uh, but he was a terrific guy, and you know, when somebody makes it big, people say, oh, I knew him when. 
And I used to say, you know, well, you know, I think it's probably true about Kurt Warner when people say that because he there wouldn't be a school reading experience and he wouldn't go and read to the kids or I mean, he was just always out there in the community. But as an athlete, I mean, he was just he was quick and he spotted the receivers so well. And uh, there was no question about that. And just and I know that the stories have come out about what a great person he is. But, he, you know, he truly was. And, and way back then when he was a young guy, he was still just that great person. Walk us through your preparation process for a basketball game. I think we talk a lot about uh, football preparation because it's in in some ways maybe the most intense but obviously you're going to be very prepared for an Iowa Hawkeye basketball game. Walk us through your process, what you do to get to where you need to be to hit the mic and go on air. Sure. And, you know, the, uh, these days, of course, most people do things on the computer. And I got to tell you, I'm still old school and I write it down in a book and I, I keep my stats. So uh, obviously you just need to start with the rosters and fill those in and, um, now the stats, and I want all this in front of me right there on that sheet and the game highs and lows. And that's when you start looking for, it, when you're on television compared to radio, more stories about the guys. So I just spend a lot of time on the Internet uh, looking up stories, reading. It used to be easier to read local newspapers, but now they all want you to subscribe to them. But, you know, I used to been able to, you know, look at the East Lansing newspaper, the Ann Arbor or times or whatever and got a lot of stories that way and then so there's all that uh there's watching games of involving these other teams as much as you can and then the shoot arounds where you really ask uh, in depth and questions of the coaches and most of whom uh bob knight would be an exception most of whom are very eager to share their information with you and so you kind of put it all together so i have just one big sheet, which is a, a you know a scorecard and all the information, and then notes at the bottom. And so I've got all that stuff in front of me. And then then the important thing is learning it. Now I'm not saying memorizing every single thing, but obviously memorizing the players' names, numbers, pronunciations correctly, things like that. So it's um it's an involved process. And I got to say, now that I don't have a day job, I get to, I just enjoy the prep even more. And I just go even deeper now. Are you a Manila folder guy? What are, what are you physically writing your notes on? No, I, um, I have a sheet. Um, it's probably about, Oh, if you can picture a larger file folder, but it's that size, but I get them bound. I go to the uh, local FedEx store and get them bound into books. And so I've got, that book and so i can actually look back in another game and if i there was a note that oh, i remember this note was back there i'll look back in into it so I, it's a it's a, a bound book that i get bound personally you know by myself uh not something i buy from anybody i was gonna say have you ever thought about putting that out on the market you could be the basketball version of bob carpenter <laughs> you know it's so simple i think nobody would buy it basically it's a wide column for the information and then two columns for the scoring each half and fouls in the middle. It's, and then, you know, space at the top and space at the bottom for notes. So, no, I think nobody would buy it. How did you find stories for TV broadcasts pre-internet? I'm assuming there was a lot of newspaper reading. Did you get subscriptions and get a whole bunch of newspapers sent to your house? Did you go to the library? What was kind of your strategy for finding information before it was at your fingertips on demand? Well, you know, in those days, I think the sports information directors were really good. If you called them 
and lots of times I can remember, I think Michigan would be a great example of this. They would send you a, a big uh, manila envelope full of, full of clippings from from newspapers. So a lot of times the SIDs would send you information from newspapers. So before the Internet, that's how we got it. We just read newspapers, but a lot of times they provided the information for you. And speaking of which, I would tell you that when I did the Barnstormers, and this is the first year we're not doing them, because uh, Mediacom decided maybe they didn't want to do the games this year. But so there is no information. Uh, most huh. teams don't put out game notes. I would go to the Internet now, and I would Google every single player for both rosters. And sometimes you got stories, and sometimes you didn't. And because that league has some suspects as well as prospects, there are some stories that were there that you couldn't use because they weren't very flattering. I did the uh, Sioux City Bandits indoor arena football, and uh, I remember getting to a broadcast, and they had rosters posted online. And I went to—I couldn't get a hold of the coach in advance; he just wouldn't answer. So I went to him to just get like name pronunciations on the most basic level, and he goes, "Oh yeah, uh-huh. that guy's gone. That guy's gone. That guy's gone." Basically. <laughs> Over 50% of the roster had just turned over from the one that they had posted. I'm just like, why do I even bother? But uh, I can totally relate to that. But the uh, Indoor Football League, they would publish rosters. And actually, it was not supposed to be for the media. It was only supposed to be for the coaches. But the coaches would always share them with me. And basically, you know, you do your preparation, make your spotting boards. But on Friday, it might change. So I learned to cut and paste. Uh, physically cut and paste. Then I did use manila envelopes for those, or manila folders for those, by the way. You mentioned that when you were talking to coaches, most of them were pretty open and sharing, except for Bob Knight. Do you have a Bob Knight story? I feel like yeah. if you mention that, that there's something behind it. Yeah, well, no, there, there are many things. Because, I mean, I, I, that's not to say he didn't meet with us. It's to say that uh, he wasn't very forthcoming with information, but... I think my favorite thing was my color commentator said to him, Bob, I'm coaching my son in AAU. Do you have any advice for me? And he says, he says, no, you're not really a coach. You wouldn't understand it anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that is funny. I share another story with you. So Norm Stewart is from Iowa. He, uh, went, um, he coached at UNI. So Missouri is playing at Iowa one day and it's, mid-semester grad, or winter graduation or whatever they call it, December graduation for the end of the fall semester. So he can't get to his shoot-around at Carver-Hawkeye Arena, and they make him practice at a campus, another campus facility. So we, of course, set up the information with uh, sports information, the, the appointment to visit with Norm. So Max McCausland and I show up there, and sports information comes out to us, and he says, Norm's not going to talk to you. And we said, why? He said, he said, you tell those guys, I'm going to give them every bit as much time as I got to warm up at Carver Hawkeye Arena. Uh, it's always irked me when uh, coaches do that things like that, like we have any control over oh, things know. like that. But, uh, but, you know, I think, I mean, you know, you have to, I mean, I understand coaches, and I, I say this in only the kindest way, they're all paranoid, right? Yes. They always think you're going to share the information. And a lot of times, and you know, when you're working with smaller schools and high schools, they're not used to giving this information. They don't exactly understand why you're getting it. 
that's one thing about getting older, Logan, is they look at an old man like me and they figure, ah, oh, he's done it for years and we might, we can trust him. But <laughs> that's one of those barriers you have to break through is just trying to get them to give you the information and convince them. And, and I often tell them, I tell them a couple of things. Like back when I was younger, I said, first of all, coach, I don't know enough about basketball to share it with Tom Davis anyway. And secondly, um, you know, they wouldn't, people wouldn't let me into their shoot arounds for all these years if in fact I did share the information. So. What advice would you give someone at a lower level talking with a high school or a small college coach who's being uh, not forthcoming to try to build that relationship and open it up? You know, the first thing I would say is, and I really believe this, you've got to let them know and understand how excited you are to be doing their game. That, I think, goes a long way in building relationships, Let you know, and if we're talking to the opposing coach when you've done it for a couple of years, and, you know, they all were young, and they were all young people trying to improve in their careers sometimes. And sometimes you can just tell them, you know, I just want to do the best job I can for my audience, and I'm not going to share the information with you. But as far as the local coach, I think you just got to let them know how thrilled you are to be doing their games. And, you know, may, you may think, though, I'm, you know, I'm, going to head, I'm heading to the NFL. This is some small high school in Idaho. But, man, you got to let them know I'm thrilled to be doing your games, and you know I, you know, go over the top in doing that. But I think they're just subtle ways of letting people know that you're really excited to be doing their games. When I reached out to people that I knew in Iowa who might know you, just looking for uh, stories, I I say digging up dirt, but I don't actually try to dig up real dirt, but just to find <laughs> stories or fun things to talk about. And nobody would say anything even remotely negative. Everybody that I talk to likes you. Uh, what is the key to being universally <laughs> uh, respected and liked in the industry in the, in the state of Iowa? Well, Logan, first of all, it must have been a small sample size. <laughs> it was three. Secondly, you know, <laughs> I'd love to know who they are. Anyway, uh, I think it's just the fact that, uh, this, I mean, my basic personality is you treat everybody the same and you appreciate everybody work and what they do and uh i guess i'm just kind of a friendly guy and i'm not a controversial guy so i'm not likely to uh make waves i'm likely to try to figure out a solution to get through something without making waves one of the things that you emailed me about a long time ago that was a good idea that i but i never ultimately did was to have sportscasters wives on the podcast and kind of talk with things from their point of view of what it is like, and I never did that. I considered it and then uh, just never was able to connect the dots to make it happen, but the the thought process behind it is interesting. I know you have a couple kids. My understanding is that you've been married for a long time. What is the key to having a great family life with a broadcast life? Yeah, and when I was coming up, I don't know if it's so much true today, and I hope it isn't, but there were a lot of divorces. And uh, first of all, having an understanding wife who understands that, um, yeah, he's going to be gone for the weekend, or he's going to be traveling, and he's going to be on the road, and I have to have these responsibilities. So my wife is very responsible. She, uh, you know, I would be gone for, you know, these road trips, and things would come up, and she just handled them very well. But I think letting uh, your wife know how much you appreciate it. You have to have a wife who understands the business, Logan, and your wife 
certainly must understand this as well. But, you know, they, not, a lot of wives, they're used to, in their mind, they were going to marry a guy with a nine-to-five job, right? So uh, I think it's really important that the woman you pick is, is understands what a passion it is for you, uh, what the sacrifices are going to be, that you're going to miss some concerts or ball games of your kids and so forth. And, and so that's the most important thing is to pick somebody who understands what the business is all about. But I still think it's a good idea, Logan, to talk to a woman. I really do. A woman, a, a, a spouse of a broadcaster. I don't know if I've talked about this on our podcast, but when we had started dating, probably about five or six months in, right as it had kind of started to become serious, I actually had a conversation and I said, Sarah, here's the deal. Like, I like where this is going. I would like to continue to pursue it, but I need to know that you're willing, basically you're willing to move around the country and follow me because I'm in such an unstable uh, career. I don't want you to find out and have to make that decision once we've already progressed. Just you need to make sure that that's something you're okay with uh, before we go forward. She she thought about it for several months, so it oh, wasn't that, it wasn't like was a perfect. immediate yes, but uh, obviously it has worked out phenomenally. But uh, we 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 had that conversation. I think that having that early and really kind of laying it down. Hey, this is necessarily fair. It's kind of selfish, but it's what it has to be. Yeah, and I think it's very, it was very mature of you. So my wife is not a sports fan at all. But when we were dating, so she, you know, we'd go to a high school game and she'd see this this idiot talking to his tape recorder with his sliding <laughs> boards in his lap. So she kind of got that. And then um, she'd say, oh, I guess going with Larry means I go to the games two hours early, right? Yes. And then, oh, we're the last ones to leave, right? <laughs> so, you know, she got a little taste of what it was like. Now, that being said, she's probably gone to – five games with me in the last 40 years but uh, at least at the beginning when we were dating you know you're still trying to impress each other she she would accompany me occasionally and so she she understood what it was like you have won the state sportscaster of the year for uh the nsma or whatever it was called before that the nssa whatever it was the national sports media you've won that award five times and four times in a row in the early 90s. Uh, I don't know if I've ever seen anyone in this podcast who's won it four times in a row in any state. Um, what did that mean to you? Obviously, it's not the reason you're doing this, but uh, I'm sure it had to be a nice uh, pat on the back. Oh, it was a great thrill for me. Absolutely. And I know you've been to North Carolina and experienced the hospitality, but to, to win it meant, I can't tell you even how much it meant to me because it meant that much to me. And then you get to go and you get to meet these sportscasters that you've heard about, and then you find out that they're they're just like you, and and they're even though you're from Iowa and this is Jim Nance or this is uh, Harry Callis or whoever, they're all they were all basically the same, and uh, they treat you so well, and so yeah, uh, winning that was uh, one of the true highlights of my career. But four times in a row, did you go to all four uh, conventions? I did. I did. Uh, and I took my wife to them all, all but one, I think she couldn't make. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I had experiences like um, being picked up at the Charlotte airport and riding with Jack Brickhouse to, uh, <laughs> you know, to, to Salisbury. I mean, that's when it was in Salisbury, North Carolina. Yeah, what a great thrill that was. And uh, winning four times in a row, I just, I think I had a lot of exposure back in those days. You know, I was doing the Hawkeyes and I, 
I was doing some TV at the time, some uh, studio work with the Hawkeyes and things like that. So it's just kind of right place, right time. At this point, you're still completely social media free is my understanding. And how have you managed to pull that off? I'm sure that one of your employers at some point has said, Hey, maybe you should start an account and start to, you know, helping to promote our stuff. And you resisted it. And how have you been able to do that? Luckily, nobody's ever asked. So my, my friend said, Larry, you really be on, be on Twitter. You can follow a lot of people. So I finally now am on Twitter, but I don't tweet. And, um, I do have, um, 16 followers. (laughs) <laughs> and I said to my buddy, I said, is this going to, am I close to being coming an influencer? He said, Larry, I think you're going to need a few more. So I can't say, Logan, that I totally understand Twitter, but like, there are things like, oh, just, you know, I would use the Drake men's and women's basketball programs. They tweet out things that I would probably find out no other way. So, uh, I'm, I'm on Twitter to follow it, but we'll probably never actually tweet anything to anybody. Fair enough. Are you on any other platforms? Personally or uh, professionally? Um, or do you not I, want I'm to disclose LinkedIn. that? I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn, but that's that's really it. Probably is not a uh, boon to sportscasting. Uh, that would be it. But I'm an old guy, Logan. You got to remember that. <laughs> you know, looking at that, at what point did you know it was time to slow down, semi-retire, and do less? Um, no, again, I, I never semi-retired from sports. I'll do all the sports that, uh, that I, I can. But as far as day job, I thought, you know, they say there's an expression when you've had enough and you have enough, that's the time to retire. I didn't retire the traditional age because I said, I got to figure out what I'm going to do in retirement before I retire. And then I realized I had to retire to figure it out. So I'm not, um, so basically, uh, I'm totally retired from day jobs and, and really only doing volunteer work and sports jobs. And some of that volunteer work, I listened to another podcast where you actually had some funny stories about it, that one of the things you volunteer at is the information booth at the airport. <laughs> and you run into some characters uh, while doing that. Tell us, oh, those, yeah. tell it's, us a couple of those. Well, there was this couple when I showed up one day. And they were sitting right outside the information booth, and they were there for like a couple hours. And finally, uh, they actually had recognized me from radio. So we were talking. I said, so why are you here? And they said, well, B.J. Thomas performed in Jefferson, Iowa last night, and we're big fans. So we thought he might be coming to the Des Moines airport to fly back to Dallas. I said, oh? He said, yeah, he wasn't on the 6 a.m. flight. And then the 11 o'clock flight, he wasn't on that. Um Maybe he'll be on the one o'clock flight, and then we're going to give up. Well, he B.J. Thomas never came through the Des Moines airport, and you know, so they never got to see him. So that was kind of strange. And then I had a very attractive, like nineteen-year-old woman come up to me at one time, and she said, "I've never flown before. I'm a little nervous." I said, "Oh, how can I help you?" She said, "Well, also I'm drunk." I said, "What?" She said, "I've had a couple of mimosas this morning, and because I'm nervous, I'm drunk." I said, "Okay." I said. There's the escalator. You go through security, and here's a little advice. They do not allow intoxicated people on planes. You probably don't want to have another drink. And she said, I won't. And she never came back through, so I assume she got on the plane and got to her flight. <laughs> what are some of your broadcast horror stories that you've had over the years? Uh, doing I knew a, that. Any, go ahead. The one that sticks out the most was 
we were doing a game at Purdue on television, and it was the stand-up, and it was fairly early in my career doing the Hawkeyes, and I like I just kind of screwed it up. I was kind of with Mackie Arena, but I have a friend whose whose nickname is Mackie, and I, I, I just my mind just wasn't in it. And it was I thought to myself, well, this is it. I can't possibly be renewed after doing a stand up like this. And for the only time in my life, the producer said, "Cut, cut! I've messed up the time. We're really not on the air yet." <laughs> and so, so I got a I got a mulligan. And it was just the only time that the timing was off. So this this thing I screwed up, we really weren't on the air. Now, maybe it's because they had me on early and I wasn't mentally prepared. But it, I just like to think it was just, just a luck, lucky thing. Another funny thing that happened, not to me, but to my partner, when we were uh, doing a game, we didn't know that back at Bristol, they start running the tape before you're actually on the air. So the the national anthem singer hit a really high note. And my partner does this reaction like uh like he you know he's just been stung by a bee or something and it's a hilarious reaction and that led sports center all night long <laughs> when uh i know just kind of doing the google search on you trying to find some stuff they quoted you several different outlets did kind of when uh gary dolphin had his unfortunate hot mic incident and i don't necessarily want to like talk about that but have you had any hot mic incidents that have ever been uh, problematic in your career you know i really haven't uh, and i feel myself very fortunate that that occurs and i uh you know i probably would curse an average amount of time that most guys do but never on the never with a microphone close and so no never had anything like that who are some of the broadcasters that you admire both on a national level some of the people in Iowa or the surrounding areas that uh, maybe are below the radar that do great work? Oh, well, nationally, uh, Kevin Harlan and Al Michaels are my, my favorites. And I'm fortunate to know Kevin and what a great person he is, as well as being a terrific announcer. Uh, in the region, uh, the voice of the Chiefs, Mitch Holtis, is incredible. I don't know if you've had him on or not, but he's an amazing guy, and uh, he does great work for the Kansas City Chiefs. Ryan Lefevre does Royals television, and I think he's terrific. Here in Iowa, I just don't get to listen to a lot of people, except I would single out John Walters, who does the Cyclone games, as somebody who I think really does a good job. Hey, before we go, can I, I just wanted to tell you something I'm really proud of in my career is that uh, I mentored the voice of the Clippers, Brian Seaman, and I always say that, you know, Brian says I deserve a lot of credit, and I say he deserves no credit, but he, he's very kind in what he says about me. And the fact that I can mentor somebody who's had that much success has always been one of my career highlights. I'm just really proud of him. And so I think it's what it goes to show is how willing people are in the business to help other people, young broadcasters coming up. What, how did you guys get connected? How did that story happen? Uh, he's from Des Moines, and what I don't remember is that he interviewed me when he was in high school when he was considering going to University of Kansas, which he did. And then, um, you know, he would stay in touch with me, and he asked me to listen to tapes and all. And I'll never forget that the last tape of his I listened to, I said, Brian, I'm sorry, I can't find anything wrong with this. And he was kind of upset with me that then actually was pissed off. He said, Wait, that's not very helpful. You can't find anything. And I said, I really couldn't. Well, apparently I was correct because he's had a great career. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely the uh, 
the critique that you want to eventually get, right? Where you exactly. figure he, that he's out. Just, he's such a perfectionist, he wouldn't buy it. But it was true. I, I, don't, I can't find a flaw here. Uh, I, I know from when I used to get my tape listened to, it would be if someone had listened to it and continuously, like, in the past pointed things out and then said, okay, you've improved to the point where, okay, I really can't find anything as opposed to some of the people will just be like, oh yeah, this sounds great. And without actually giving it a deep listen. So I don't know. That's my experience. Yeah. (laughs) Anything else that that we haven't talked about that we should? Well, you know, I've heard you talk about people who maybe don't reach the level that they want to reach. And I would tell you that, uh, I, I'm just as happy doing a high school game as I am was doing, you know, a huge University of Iowa game. Uh, I think just it's such a great profession, and the people you meet are so great. And and Tom Hedrick said something nice about me that I would just pass along. He said, "You are a major market announcer in a medium market," and I think I think that's a great compliment. And he one of his great pieces of advice was, "Just because the game is bad doesn't mean you have to be." And I just think that the just enjoy the level that you're at and just realize how fortunate you are to get to know the people you know and get the notoriety that you get and get to be around this stuff. I think it's just that's the advice I would just pass out to anybody at any level. Well, that's the the other thing I should have brought up with you is that uh, Des Moines in 1978 is a lot different than uh, Des Moines now where it's kind of, it's got to be borderline top 50 market. At this point, yeah. I, would, I would guess. Oh, I'm, sure, I'm sure. I'm sure it's grown. Yeah, you're right. It, it has come a long way. The, the city, uh, has, the central part of Iowa, has just grown a lot in that time. And you're right. It, it probably is closer now. But I never, I never think of it that way. But yeah, you probably bring up a good point. Yeah, that sometimes you're just in the right place, and if you stay long enough, it becomes the right place. Exactly. I, boy, that's a great statement about my career. I totally agree with what you just said. All right. If anybody wanted to reach out to you, Larry, how would they do that? Uh, my email address is lmorgan1564 at yahoo.com. Again, I'll lmorgan1564 at yahoo.com. And by the way, you know, you've suggested reaching out to some of your guests. And I have just to tell them how much I've enjoyed the podcast and people like George Grand and uh, Tim Healy and all people I don't know. But they've responded, and that's always great. So I, I want you to know people actually do what you ask them to do. <laughs> the few, the proud, the the say the damn score nation. But absolutely, you are you are. It's a great service, and I tell anybody who's going into the business that, that you just got to start listening to Save the Damn Score podcast. Well, I sure appreciate it, and I really thank you for coming on the show today. Again, we're talking with Larry Morgan. He's the TV voice of the Drake Bulldogs in Des Moines, Iowa. And, Larry, again, thanks so much. Oh, I've been flattered and been privileged that you asked me. Thanks so much, Logan. Keep up the good work. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of SayTheDamnScore.com. Also, please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice, And remember, Apple Podcast reviews, emails, or any other kind of honest feedback, always greatly appreciated, helps me make the show better and give me ideas in in where we can do things differently. Finally, please reach out to the guests on the show to let them know you appreciate them sharing their stories on the podcast. 
And Larry won't be able to send a message to himself, so somebody else is going to have to do it today. As always, I'm your host, Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.